welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, everyone. Buddy C, welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. We're happy today to have Sensei with us. Hello, sir. Thank you for being with us. Very happy to be here. Thank you. We have also have Craig and Zach and Tina at the moment. I know Marla's not going to be here. She's visiting her daughter. They're, uh, I think they're hiking in Colorado somewhere, so she wow. hated to have to miss. Looking forward to a good podcast today. Since say before we start, let's read the second verse for some foundation for the answering of your questions, please. This is the second verse from... Wayne Dyer, change your thoughts, change your life. Under heaven, all can see beauty as beauty, only because there's ugliness. All can know good is good, only because there is evil. Being and non-being produce each other. The difficult is born in the easy, the long is defined by short, the high by the low, before and after go along with each other. So the sage lives openly with apparent duality and paradoxical unity. The sage can act without effort and teach without words. Nurturing things without possessing them, he works but not for rewards. He competes but not for results. When the work is done, it is forgotten. That is why it lasts forever. I have a few questions, and one is from Paul. I don't know if Paul's online yet with us, but uh, I did want to point out that this book, uh, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life by Dr. Wayne Dyer, uh, apparently was part of a television program, and the other translation is pretty authoritative, authoritative I suppose, uh, is assumed to be an authoritative translation of the Tao, Tao Te Ching. But, uh, I wanted to point out that um, Dr. Dyer's uh, style is a little bit off-putting, and you, some of you may have found that too. It's like he's telling you what to think and what to do. And, but I wanted you to be a little forgiving about that because he's, uh, he it probably was developed as um, from scripts and transcriptions from television show where you're dealing with an audience through the screen. Um, you know, you have to cover a lot in, say, a half-hour program. And I, I've done this for a local group, Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasting. I had a series on on the Eightfold Path to Daily Enlightenment uh, based on Buddha, Buddha, Buddhism's Eightfold Path. And it's it's kind of a pressure cooker. You, 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 you have a prompter running your script that you've written, and you have to kind of stick to, stick to your guns and do it. But when it's put in a book like this, it's a little off-putting, I think, and a lot of tone in um, Zen publications are similar, where they seem to be saying that if you, if only you were like me, you know, if only you were enlightened like me, you know, you wouldn't have the problems you're having. And so here I'm telling you what to do, how to do it, and so forth. One of the uh, significant dimensions that are is missing, and the one we emphasize is in Zen is the practicing of meditation, physical sitting upright meditation. And when the person you're talking to, and I do probably two dozen or more individual dialogues a week from half an hour to an hour each uh, with, with various students uh, all over the country and some, some in Europe, uh, I can be pretty sure that they're practicing meditation between our our talks. And so uh, the dialogue can then proceed along those lines. I liken it to using an application on a computer. If you get a, uh, a techie online to talk to you about some glitch you've run into, they can be pretty sure you're using the application, right? Otherwise, why would you be talking to them? So I think most of the literature that we read in, uh, around Zen, at least, is like that. And certainly the book, the book that uh, we're publishing in January 
is like that. It's like a guide. If you're practicing meditation, if you're not practicing meditation, it's encouraging you to practice meditation. Just as a, a technical backup on an application for your computer doesn't make much sense unless you're using the application. So um, that's one one sort of uh, critical comment commentary I wanted to make on on the on the on the Dr. Dyer book that it may come off that way, but if we can read between the lines, we can see how he's trying to encourage us and what he's trying to get us to do. Personally, because I come from a Zen background, I really miss the meditation aspect. And it's in Jog, what's it called? Jog Chen in Tibetan Buddhism. They, they think you don't have to meditate. You can just kind of change your mind and get to this point. We don't believe that in Zen. We think the problem is too hard, that you have to pull out the root, as Buddha said, or you have to knock down the ridgepole of the house. That takes meditation. Anyway, with that commentary, let me just, does anybody want to ask a question there before I proceed into the questions? We have time. We only have five questions. so I'll take it's that as a no. <laughs> so, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I, I had noticed what you, what you said about the, the Wayne Dyer translation. Yeah. Has, it been, has it been more of a self-help book rather than a... An, um, yeah. And basically, uh, this is how you do it. I'd often yeah. wonder when, when we're reading some of this thing, you know, how how can we do this after after reading this sort of thing? How can we do this in our daily life, going from being being in the, this this great place from reading and discussing this sort of thing yeah. to then going into your everyday life? Yeah. I think a, a lot of time I seem to forget that Doctor Dyer was uh, was a self help yeah. supremo. Yep. And this, uh, I th- I sometimes I get the impression yeah. that he's he's more talking at you yep. than putting that yeah. arm around you and just and, just. And, unfor- you. Unfortunately, when you do run into the inevitable uh, difficult situation, frustration in daily life, and you you react in frustration, anger, and so forth, then you think, "What did Doctor Dyer say?" About, you know, and then you feel like a failure because you 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 can't practice what he's preaching. So in Zen, we put the practice first. Sit in meditation. Uh, just sit still enough for long enough, you know, and you will develop a kind of uh, visceral patience. You'll develop a kind of physical uh, approach to this. And then the words uh, you'll discover in your practice, uh, because you're not doing anything in particular uh, other than sitting meditation. Very like I think of it like a magnifying glass or like a prism. It's like a a way of focusing and magnifying what you're trying to do in daily life anyway. But daily life is way too complicated and busy. So what happens is uh, these things come up in meditation and they're, they're, they're a little more easy to deal with on a very direct and intense level. And they kind of sink in. And I, it's been called withdrawal, like a process of withdrawing, withdrawing from senses and from sensory pleasures and from pursuit of even just speculation intellectual entertainment, like reading a book is entertaining. Uh, Our meditation in Zen, at least, is kind of withdrawing from all of that to kind of get down to something more basic, which can be very boring if, if, if you're inclined to be bored. But we take the position that if you can actually be bored, you're just not sufficiently aware of the dire straits that you're really in. It's like poverty of imagination. So um, I, I agree with you, and it's uh, it's just sort of built into the format and into the medium. You have to kind of read, work around it, you know, and try to take what you can from the from the message that you can apply. We find it much easier to apply if you're actually doing meditation. So anything else? So please explain. <laughs> we don't like the word explain how you see being and non-being producing each other. It appears that the extremes create each other. How? And this is a legitimate question, and the text implies that. The commentary uh, implies that. Right? I mean, that's what he seems to be saying. So I think the first thing I'd ask you to do is examine the word produce. What does it mean? How, How would such opposites as being and non-being produce each other. Produce has this connotation of causality, cause and effect. We say a cause produces an effect. 
right? So right away we're into linear linear logic. Uh, but as we know, Taoism and and Zen uh, that it preceded in China are not logic in the they're not logical in the linear sense. They're more like logical in the coincidental sense or simultaneity. Uh, so you'd have to say being and non-being are producing each other simultaneously. Not one produces the other in a linear timeline sequence. And this word producing and the word create, creating, are both uh, the operative verbs here. So you want to examine those. And you have to assume that the translator had to make some tough choices in translating the original Chinese. Uh, whatever the word was that translated as produce, or whatever the word is that we translate as create, probably had 15, 20 other connotations in Chinese that he couldn't choose because he had to choose the one that made sense to him and the way he was point he was trying to get across. So this is a well-known problem in translation. So again, we can be a little forgiving uh, that it that it seems to be implying something that doesn't seem all that rational. So there's a, I can't remember, um, there's a Chinese book I read, and uh, in it, uh, I, I mix these up because I've read so many Japanese and Chinese tracks on, on this, but he uses the word at one point in there, the uncreate, and a word like the fundamental. And, you know, these words, again, um, choices that somebody had to make uh, uh, to try to capture the meaning. But think about that word, the uncreate. What I like about it has un, <laughs> my Dharma name, Thailand, cloud, you know, as part of the beginning. It's like the uncola, you know, seven up is the uncola. So it's not cola. It's the opposite of cola. Uh, so it, it's un, the uncreate is the opposite of create. So uh, if we're examining the uncreate, then we're looking into that which was never born, that which cannot be created. Uh, that which is, uh, we could say it's that, could be that which is, but it was never created. And this is where uh, Buddhism in general and Eastern religions in particular start to part company with uh, theology and creationist type religions. Every every civilization, every tribe primitive tribe has its creation myth but buddhism looks at it as kind of an endless regress to a beginningless beginning and if you run the tape forward it's to kind of an endless endless uh future and so the hindus had the model of the four kalpas of the kalpa of empty the empty kalpa the kalpa of creation the middle kalpa i can't remember what it was and then the kalpa of destruction these huge epochs of time kind of similar to the bounce theory in physics or kind of similar to the the theory that yes the universe did expand from a big bang primordial event of some kind there's evidence for that but does it just keep on going to uh, heat death of the universe or does it collapse back on itself at some point the hindus apparently had this concept that eventually it all collapses back together another one uh, blows up another one all right and like that so create and produce are very uh, troubling terms to, to use here. So I think in Zen, we would not explain that being and non-being produce or create each other, but they have this symbiotic or complementary relationship. Uh, one of the great Chinese poems uh, towards the end, the Xing Xing Ming, it was third patriarch in China, uh, uh, the second Chinese patriarch, Bodhidharma, was the first. And towards the end, it says something like, uh, so too with uh, 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 something like, uh, all, all definitions have vanished and no boundaries are, are seen. So too with being and non-being. So the boundary, as you might imagine, between being and non-being, according to this poem, in terms of this uh, Zen insight, and this was very much 600, around 600 days, I'm sure Taoism was very active and influential. And this uh, this uh, teacher, Sung San, had probably been very highly influenced by Taoism, 
and Confucianism for that, for that matter. But he says, uh, no boundaries are seen. At this point in your, in your awareness, all boundaries have dissolved. All definitions have vanished. So you're kind of in a, a null state, you could say, where consciousness, yes, but even consciousness comes under question, into question. No boundaries are seen. So too with being and non-being. So if you think about the existential problem of being and non-being, it's what Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, was so caught up in, what many of the existentialists struggle with, right? Uh, being and non-being set up a polar dyad to, to contrast the possibility of non-being, the possibility of being. And then the question comes, what is the difference? And how, how do these modif you know, mutually define each other? So it would not be so much a causality between being and non-being. It would be the mutual complementarity of being and non-being simultaneously. Does that make sense? I mean, none of this makes sense. <laughs> even, even Buddha didn't understand this, right? <laughs> so I would restructure that question. Uh, how do we understand the relationship between being and non-being? and not put it in a causal context to start with. Is that enough on that one? Any question or comment? I don't have any question. Of the being and non-being for me, um, I, I, can see, I can see what you're saying with that and how, what, it's hard to put into words really. If, where, where should we be? I, if if being and non-being are here, are we just, is there a balance we're to be, or is one and the other, are we like the breath, like the pause between the breath, the in and the out, or, or what's the... That, that's not a bad approach to it, I think. Uh, think of space-time and divide, divide it into space and time, even though Einstein would give you an argument, right? But you could think of being and non-being spatially. And so you could say, this laptop computer sitting in front of me, is what in Zen is called a Dharma being, or in Buddhism. It's, it, it occupies a Dharma location that nothing else in the universe occupies. It's real in that sense, right? It's, it's, it's a being. It's not a living being. It's an insentient being. But an atom, a molecule, a, a, a photon, according to this principle, is still a being, even though it's micro-tiny, you know. And a galaxy is a being because it's an organized cluster of, of other beings. So uh, the word is very dharma being, dharma as being is very loose and kind of a flexible kind of term. But, uh, and dharma also means true, so it's a true being, and this is part of the truth that these beings exist. So if you think of it spatially, we now have the advantage of physics uh, through instruments, through all kinds of what we learned in high school and uh, in the days of in the ch days of uh, Taoism in China, they didn't have that. They didn't have it in, in the days of Buddhism in China. It was all, I wouldn't call it speculation, but it was all intuition, the way they came to these understandings. They had a theory of the atom, but it was said to have been asked, um, you can divide, you know, something in half, a cookie, whatever, you can divide in half again, half again, half again, half again. Until you finally get down to the last tiny little particle of that cookie, and you divide that in half. They asked Buddha, what is that, or where are you then? He said, you're right on the edge of form and emptiness. So they use form, rupa, or appearance, and emptiness, shanyata, as opposing these two things that are very similar in, in kind to matter and energy, and Einstein's equation of E equals mc squared. Einstein quantified it. And then the dramatic proof of that, that matter is mostly energy, was the atomic bomb. And it blew everybody's mind. It should have. It was turned into a weapon, right? As we do with everything. A physical ingenious uh, insight was turned into this bomb. But anyway, it proved the point. And so you could say energy, matter is energy, is roughly equivalent to form is emptiness. One is the appearance, the outer appearance, and the other is the essence. 
So we know we're sophisticated. We know that the laptop computer is mostly space. It's, mo it's mostly energy. It's impounded energy in the form of molecules of metal, aluminum, and so forth, uh, all, all of the kinds of constituents that go into it. And they are constantly decaying by particle decay, if nothing else. So they're constantly changing. And so that's what we mean by emptiness. Uh, it is gradually changing. And it won't be what it is now, some point in the future. Nowadays, about five years of the shelf life a computer has in terms of its operability. And it isn't what it used to be. And so that's the way, that's the way we, we look at it uh, in terms of space. Then in terms of time, you would say, you know, this moment is that we're in now, where I'm saying what I'm saying now is, is being. We're, we're, it, it's a form of being, but I just said something else before this, and it is no longer being, so it's in the realm of non-being now. Mm -hmm. The immediate past is no longer retractable. We can't live in the future, so our focus of attention is in this present moment, which my teacher, Matsuoka Roshi, called the eternal moment, because as Dogen argues in Uji, which is called existence time or being time, one of his fascicles, which is said to have anticipated relativity, he goes into a very thoroughgoing discussion of the nature of time. And uh, in the present moment, uh, past and future are both embedded. Uh, so the firewood, you know, has the existence of firewood in its moment, and past and future is already there. The ash, after the firewood has been burned, is also in the present moment and has past and future in it. So he said, don't, don't mistake the ash for the future of the firewood and the firewood for the past of the ash. They have their own exclusive existence in time. So the way we would think of it is in time would be more like that. Um, the only time that is being is the present moment. And according to Zen, as well as physics, it's moving so rapidly and flashing by so quickly that we, we cannot register. It's like the... Uh, it's like the refresh rate on your monitor screen. The only reason you see my picture, you see whatever you know we're looking at, and I see you, is because um, our, our nervous system is not moving as fast as the refresh rate of the monitor screen. If it were, we'd only see the rasters. You know, Like uh, when they first came up with cinematography, it was, turned out to be about 16 cycles per second was the level you had to reach of frequency. 16 uh, flick, flickers per second in the, in the cinemascope before you could actually see the horse running. You could see the illusion of motion. So this theory in Buddhism is called the instantaneous theory of the universe, and it says really everything is like that. It has a refresh rate, but it's just so fast that it arises, abides, changes, and decays so quickly that we, we, we can't, uh, we can't uh, register it, if that makes sense. Let's say I had one more moving that toward like Craig was talking about some practice day-to-day practicality. Yep. Uh, would it be the same? I was thinking about all the times that I take an extreme position or insist on my way. I always get this pushback. It's like I yep. create yep. the opposite. Is that the same? Is Does that apply here too? I think so. We, we try to hang on to the past. We try to plan and, and affect the future, and uh, that's natural. It's built into our survival mechanisms. But uh, in all humility, we have to come to recognize the futility of that. But on an absolute basis, there's only so much we can do. Uh, we're not in control of as much as we'd like to be in control of. And so just as a very broad general principle, we develop patience. Uh, especially in, on the cushion. If we do meditation, sometimes you just want to get up and run screaming out of the place, you know, because there's so much going on in your life that you're not taking care of and you get caught in that syndrome. <clears throat> but if you can stick it out and develop patience with yourself on the cushion, then we think it carries over into everyday life and you can be more patient with their, your everyday life situation. Where we, where we differ from Taoism and other philosophies 
is we don't think you can just bring this about by thinking about it and changing your mind. We think you actually have to challenge yourself and put yourself in uh, difficult positions of resistance. And things like uh, working out, athletics, uh, those kind of programs are similar to Zen in that they take a lot of repetition and a lot of drill and going, you know, no pain, no gain, and going through the going through all that before you start to manifest uh, benefits from the from the from the program. So it's the same thing with Zen. It's like working a muscle. Uh, good luck on trying to just be calmer and think more clearly and so and so forth. We think that's where the monkey mind comes into play, and that's part of the problem to begin with. So we have to go beyond thinking or beyond total reliance on thinking our way to enlightenment kind of thing. That's where the physical meditation comes in. Thank you. Zach, do you have a question, sir? <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm calling everybody. Um, no, I, I, was, uh, I was just curious. I was thinking a little bit about your uh, disclaimer at the beginning, you know, a lot of this being in the context of meditation. And I'm wondering for, for, us, if, for us, yeah, for Zen, sure. but not, not for Taoism necessarily. Well, I'm just wondering in, in your experience specifically, would you say it's even possible to approach some of this stuff outside of a meditation practice? Oh yeah, uh, the, the 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 history of I'm sure of Taoism, but of Buddhism and Zen has always included, you know, more than one thing. Meditation is a big part of it. At least uh, the we we claim to carry forward the tradition of Buddha himself in relying on meditation to help sort sort through all of this chaos and confusion. Um, and uh, but but. Um, in every case, it's like Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the three treasures. Buddha, you could say, is time on the cushion, direct insight, your own personal um, efforts and practice. Dharma is studying what the ancestors have taught and, and, and seeing if you can glean something from that, that that is helpful to your own practice. But it's definitely second to, to, to meditation. And Sangha community is third, uh, meaning practicing in the context the social context so that's those three emphasis emphases have always been there and the one we're talking about daily life going out and, and trying to remember and you know mindfulness meditation or being mindful is a big part of zen meditation partly remem means remembering and not not forgetting and falling back into the same habit patterns and you know, frustrating and destructive behaviors and obsessive compulsive, et cetera. Uh, part of that is remembering, but we think it takes place on a uh, more a uh, motor muscle memory kind of level than it does on a conscious uh, intellectual level. That instead of trying to recall and think through uh, all these things we've been taught in, in words and concepts, because you sit very still in meditation in, in the Zendo, you calm down, you, you, you become physically balanced in the posture. Then you become uh, emotionally balanced and you have less anxiety. You, you, you literally, your, your nervous system, everything calms down. Your gland, glandular system, chemi chemistry, this has all been traced. Your brain, this has all been traced scientifically what happens. So um, you become more um, emotionally calm, less anxiety. Then you have also, on the mental level, you have more clarity, less confusion. Because what you've been studying about and reading, like this stuff, you begin to kind of experience it in, in a sensory way, in your own being, as you're sitting there. So it starts to, oh, that's what that's talking about. So physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, it's all tied together, one big ball of wax. And uh, socially, uh, eventually, you can become calmer. You can become more adroit, you might say, less conflict with relationships on the social level, at work, at play, at home. Uh, but that doesn't come first. That comes last. And in, in Zen, at least, we the, the method is to sit still enough, long enough, as stupid, simple as that sounds, 
right? And how could that do anything? Well, it's very unnatural, <laughs> you know. So it pushes it pushes the physiological, neurological envelope until you know until it has to something has to give. And what gives, we think, is the the personality, the ego, the all the stress-inducing defensiveness, and so that's what has to give. Uh, if you sit still enough, long enough, and don't give up. So yes, it carries over into your life, but we say don't try to apply Zen to your life because you'll probably screw it up. You know, just apply yourself to Zen, and don't no worries, it will apply itself to your life. And what happens is other people see it first. We had a guy come in; he'd been promoted, the local weather channel, and uh, he said they said it's because I work so well with everybody. Got a big, big promotion. He said, and that's not me. I'm the troublemaker. But he didn't see it in himself. The same guy was later recruited by Apple is now out on California running a program for them. So he saw himself. He didn't see it in himself, you know. But through his practice of meditation, he had gotten calmer and, you know, less likely to make trouble. <laughs> so we think it works on a very neurophysiological level, really. And say, I think uh, I think that's a real um, an aspect of the first step. If you were talking about uh, applying this to twelve step recovery, right. it's an element of surrender. Yeah, if you look at the zazen posture, you're sitting there with your legs crossed. Crossed. If you if you're flexible enough, you lock them into place. You can't run. You know, you can't fight unless you're a really good martial artist. So the fight or flight syndrome is completely suppressed. You are surrendering to the present moment and you're giving up. And you're saying, let the, save me, Lord, or whatever, you know, let, let the information come to me. Let me, let me examine this. So we think that's what Buddha did. He uh, was said to have sat down and resolved to die if need be, to solve this dilemma, this problem of suffering and so forth. Fortunately, he didn't die. And he had this profound experience. But he, you have to get, we think you have to get to that point of really desperation. And, every, you know, everybody in recovery is familiar with that point. Zach, do you have anything else, sir? No, I'm, yeah, that's it's really, that's really good stuff. I like the idea about the, uh, you know, not applying Zen to your life and, and Zen, you know, applying. Yeah. yeah. And just trust your mind. That's the, Sung San uh, wrote this wonderful tract in uh, 600 uh, called Trust in Mind or Faith in Mind. And it means you can trust what you're turning yourself over to when you surrender to, to Zen, to, to meditation. You can trust it and it will see you through. So, so yeah. I'm always very, uh, I'm always curious about ways that I can, um, you know, well, you know, one of the things they teach in recovery is to share your own experience. Um, and I'm all, but I'm always very hesitant to tell people to tell anybody to do anything, you know? Yeah. We don't do that either. We give Um, instruction. We tell you how, how to sit, how to approach breathing and how to approach your attention. It's only those three things, but we don't tell you what to do or what to think. Yeah, we, we, which is probably good. Um, it's more how, I'm always, how to do it, you know, how we right, do it anyway. Yeah, sure. I've had, in, I mean, I still definitely consider myself a, a novice meditator, mm-hmm. um, but I've had such positive r- results from it. It's hard yeah, for me yeah. not when uh, when someone you know, someone's sharing a problem with me or difficulty yep. they're having. It's it's really hard for me not to be like, you should just go do this. You need to just yeah. go, you need to go just sit down for a long time and stop talking. Yeah, that's uh, the, the, the general area of what is called skillful means or expedient means. The way you relate to others, especially if you're in a teaching relationship with a student, is what is where skillful means comes into play. You can discourage them, you can confuse them, you can get in their way. Uh, so, you know, they, our attitude is basically, look, this is my practice. This is what I do uh, for that, right? And uh, here's how I do it. 
and I learned this from my teacher. And you're, I'm not recommending you do this. That's, that's your call, you know. But you're welcome to join me if you want. <laughs> you know, it's more like that. It's an apprentice mode type of training. Yeah, I've always, uh, every, and Buddy and I have read through uh, a lot of these verses of the Tao Te Ching. And it, it seems like, uh, well, I guess all of them at this point. But um, it seems like almost every verse there, you know, there's a point where I'm thinking to myself, this is, you know, this is really meditation. This is, yeah. uh, this is a good example. You know, meditation is a good example of what's, what's happening in this verse. It's like a, it's its own little microcosm of reality. Remember in those days, meditation was probably not its own thing. Just like we say, primitive tribal societies were artful. They had artisans who made made everything and did decoration, but they, there was no such thing as art. You know, now we're in an age where everything has been set out into its own niche. You know, so Zen is in, an, and meditation is in this box. But I don't think it was that way. I think you'd be pretty sure, I, I'm, I'm not a historian or scholar, that Lao Tzu and Confucius, they all did meditation. It was probably built into the culture. You know, but it, it probably, it might not even be, have been identified as a separate thing called meditation. Mm. So That's shall good. I go on? Yes. I had one more quick question for you, Sensei, in regards to this. In your experience, when someone started Zen, when, in the timeline of their progress, when does most people... How much time do they spend daily? And we've talked about this some, but I just want to make sure we put it in regards to this conversation. That's and a big how long question. before they start seeing yeah. changes like we're talking about? It's a big question, but unfortunately, there's no pat answer to it. Because you have a guy like Wenong, who is the, the sixth patriarch in China. He was an illiterate bumpkin from the, from the boonies. He couldn't read or write. He accidentally overheard a monk chanting the Diamond Cutter Sutra in a courtyard where he's delivering firewood. That's what he did to support his mother. He was in his 20s, and uh, he, it hit him like a ton of bricks. It was a line that says something like the true mind being that which clings to nothing or sticks nowhere, something like that. And so he was just ripe and ready. He had never practiced. He had never studied. He had no teacher, and he made... Um, preparations for his mother to be supported and he followed that monk and traveled to to meet the fifth patriarch of the time whose name was Hongren and within nine months he was given the robe and bowl to be the next patriarch hmm. this would be like I don't know what it would be like today but it'd be like the pope bringing in a teenager punk rock star from Rome and giving him the papal <laughs> you know it caused a huge stink and uh so you can't really and, and that we say that's uh merit accumulated in past lives that's the way that's explained so you could be ripe and ready and it may take no time at all but uh m most of the memes that we apply today like ten thousand hours to master anything five years at, you know full time pretty much apply and uh that there's no guarantee and uh, current books on brain science that are studying the effects of meditation point out again and again that the only real measurable that they can, they can correlate with brain changes that seem to be permanent is a book now called Altered Traits, T-R-A-I-T-S, by a guy named Daniel Goldman, who I quote extensively in my book. There are these there's mind scientists who study this, right? And he, he and his partner are two of the leading ones. They, they, their theory is that altered states that come about temporarily through meditation always sort of tend to revert and regress, you know. Uh, but if you continue practicing these Tibetan monks who have 40,000 hours of meditation time logged, they seem to show this, these effects that are now traits. They don't ever regress. They don't change. So the brain has been permanently rewired. This is their theory. I push back against it because 
then everybody's going to say, well, hell, you know, I can't spend 40,000 hours doing this, so I may as well not even try. So I, you know, I push back against what they're trying to do. I, I, I understand how and why they're trying to do it, but it has this uh, unfortunate downside that it can discourage people and the only thing they can measure. So in our school, we don't think the measurables, how long you sit, how often you sit, how frequently, et cetera, the things you can measure, we don't think those are nearly as important as that you just don't give up. You just keep coming back because we think there's a cumulative effect over time. So, but nonetheless, people fall into a standard kind of pattern where if a person, if a person sits <coughs> an hour or two or a couple times a day, once a day, and we say, don't make a must do of it. Just make it a, I get to, I get to sit right when I get to sit. <clears throat> That's a pretty average pattern that people might do every day, seven days a week. They may skip a day here and there. Uh, we say, don't neglect your projects. Don't, don't make Zen a, a wedge issue between you and your family or your job or anything like that. So the moderate middle way, moderate path. But a lot of people get to the point that they're sitting once or twice a day. And then they will come to the Zen center maybe once a week and sit for, you know, several hours. And we have once a month um, day-long sits where you might sit from 9 to 4 in the afternoon once a month. And a lot of people do that. And then once or twice a year, you might come to a 5- or 10-day retreat. So you start adding that up, that gets to be about 500, between 500 and 1,000 hours a year. So, um, and we think that's for lay people. Uh, monks you know, don't have anything else to do. <laughs> I'm kidding. They do. But uh, lay people have uh, jobs to keep. They have houses to maintain. They have cars to keep on the road, children to raise, you know, all this stuff. That's all practice, too. So our idea of it is that you don't not count. It's like not paying, not paying mom for housework and taking care of the kids. That's a job. She should be compensated somehow. We think the same thing is true in Zen, that it should come in and support everything else you do in your life. And so it, it, it cannot be that it can be surely just the measurement of how much time you put in sitting on the cushion. Because frankly, a lot of people are sitting on the cushion wasting time. It looks like they're meditating, but they're not. So we think the immeasurables or the qualitative side of it is as important, more important than the quantitative. That is, when you sit, you just sit. That's when you can do more sitting, right? And when you catch yourself not sitting, you're doing worrying about finances or something. We have techniques like jot notes down on a notepad, you know, set that aside for now and get back to it later. It's important, but you don't want to sit there and obsess over it. So we figured out all kinds of techniques for how to, when, you, when you're actually sitting, to qualitative sit more. People say, I know I should sit more. And I say, well, when can you sit more? <laughs> you can't sit more in the past. It's too late. You can't sit more in the future. It's not here yet. You can plan to. The only time you can sit more is in the present. And it's when you're actually sitting. So the more, in my opinion, is turn up the intensity knob. It's qualitative. It's not quantitative. If that makes sense. But then if you, once you start experiencing longer retreats and things, you begin to realize you can't separate the qualitative and quantitative in Zen, and maybe in anything, but certainly in Zen. Because the quantitative, spending five days on a retreat, opens up a much bigger window. You're not worrying about what you're going to be doing this afternoon. You're going to be just sitting here doing the same thing tomorrow and the next day. So that whole monkey mind thought process falls away when you're on longer retreats. Thank but you. it's like anything else you do, exercise or aerobics or, you know, I know from personal experience that I started seeing benefits from the first day I started meditating. So it was nothing that took any length of time yeah. at all. Most people do. But then they reach a they, they, they plateau. You know, they reach a peak where they think, well, I've gotten all I can get out of this or not working anymore or something. <clears throat> so <clears throat> since they had a word called choda in the Japanese, C-H-O-D-A, he said, you go along for a long time, and if you don't quit, <laughs> then it gets it kind of gets harder and harder. Uh, it's like the 100-yard dash. The last 10 yards are the hardest. 
He said, but then you reach a point where you experience a choda. Choda means fall up. So you fall up. So something happens, and it can be very large or it can be small, uh, but it encourages you and you keep going. And he said, but what you fall up to is the next plateau. <laughs> so now, now you go on again with no sense of progress for a long time. If you persist, you don't give up, then you have another choda fall up and so forth, like that. Make sense? Thank you. Okay, so is the sage living in, quote, apparent duality really means he lives in non-duality? The, the point is, our, our meditation, our insight, however deep and profound, doesn't change anything. Everything is the same. So what we mean by duality and non-duality uh, could mean, for instance, that even though you've had great insight, uh, you still find yourself worrying about this, having to take care of that. So you still find yourself in, in duality, right? <coughs> it's, a, it's like a fantasy to imagine that you could, not, you could somehow escape reality uh, through this process of Taoism, Zen, and so forth. It's not about escaping suffering or escaping reality. It's more about embracing it. And so um, you are always living in non-duality, whether you know it or not. Duality and non-duality are another pair of, of dual dyads that define each other. And so um, they're very interesting to speculate about and to talk about. I just wrote a whole long dissertation for the uh, for the uh, course on my chapter in, in this book, which is titled um, Learning to Live in Non-Duality Without Losing Your Grip on Reality. <laughs> so the truth is, nothing changes. Uh, the only thing that changes is our attitude, our approach, our apprehension of reality, uh, all of the things that heretofore have been getting in our way, basically. Um, so wh whatever the resolution for you of duality versus non-duality, it's already true. It, it, your coming to terms with it has nothing to do with reality. It doesn't change reality, right? It's, comforting, it's a comforting idea to understand that uh, your meditation, your practice, your study can only reveal what is already true. It can't change anything. And so that should give me a relief. That should give you a sense of relief that, you know, this is not, um, I'm not gaining anything creating anything you know we're not god we didn't create this but i'm opening up the possibility of having a more well-rounded view of my reality right which includes duality versus non-duality as a, another form of yin yang you know um, this is the the dance of the mind the mind the brain apparently works on a need-to-know basis and vacillation back and forth between opposites that's the way it works. And so to try to escape duality, to enter into non-duality, is an absurdity on its, on its surface. It's like saying, I'm going to get rid of delusion, and then I'll be enlightened. <laughs> you know, uh, delusion is what defines enlightenment, and vice versa. Then uh, the next one is simpler, what is acting without, not simpler, what is acting without effort, but it sort of brings it down to where the rubber hits the road. Master Dogen, in one of his uh, re revisions of a Chinese poem called Zazen Shen. Zazen Shen means something. Shen means something. In this case, it doesn't mean mind. It means something like lancet or acupuncture needle. So Zazen Shen means uh, a lancet for a Zazen, for meditation, or an acupuncture needle for meditation, something that goes right to the point. Don't know if you've ever had acupuncture done. But they're really sharp needles that they put in your back and and so forth. And so that's the idea of the title. 
And he, uh, let me recite it for you. It's, it's brief enough. I can recite the whole thing. I don't know if I have before. Have I? Do you remember? It's, it's talking about meditation and the whole reason for being of meditation. He starts out saying, uh, the essential function of Buddhas, and it's all about Zazen, so you can fill in, Zazen is the essential function of Buddhas. The essential function of Buddhas and the functioning essence of ancestors actualized within non-thinking, manifested within non-interacting. Then the next four lines take up the last two of the first one. Actualized within non-thinking, the actualization is by nature intimate. Manifested within non-interacting, the manifestation is itself verification. The actualization, um, actualized, oh, actualization, oh, the actualization that is by nature intimate never has defilement, meaning being reduced to ordinary terms, not moral, moral defilement. The actualization um, without, uh, never has defilement. The manifestation that is by nature uh, verification never has distinction between absolute and relative. The something without defilement, the intimacy without defilement is dropping off without relying on anything. This is where he turns it into action, what we do in meditation. The intimacy without defilement is dropping off without relying on anything. The verification beyond distinction between absolute and relative is making effort without aiming at it. Then he goes on to say, the water is clear to the earth, a fish is swimming like a fish, the sky is vast and extends to the heaven. A bird is flying like a bird. So he brings it back to concrete nature. So if you think about that, he says the, the, the um, intimacy without defilement is dropping off without relying on anything. Elsewhere, this phrase dropping off body and mind of yourself and body and mind of others is part of this process. Dropping off without relying on anything means that this at this extreme point or dire strait, we we can't rely on all of our <clears throat> trinkets and trash and all the tools and kits, <laughs> toolkit that we usually try to <clears throat> rely on. That all has to be thrown overboard, overboard. We have to let all that go. So sitting without relying on anything, and then the the uh, manifestation beyond distinction between absolute and relative, the verification of your practice is making effort without any aiming at it. So look at uh, this question, what is acting without effort? This is saying that, yes, Taoism is holding out the promise that you can eventually become effortless in your activity. That is, whatever's happening, whatever you need to respond to, you have an automatic and uh, response to it, and it's probably gonna be the right response. You don't have to second guess yourself, you don't, and so forth. And we claim that in Buddhism too for Zen, but it's based on getting straight with yourself on the cushion first, so that you have you don't have a dog in the hunt. You got nothing to win or lose in your transactions in public and in society, and with with friends and, and so forth, or even enemies. Uh, so that you're you're more likely to be able to do what has to be done in any given situation. So that's acting without effort, but a, uh, take, taking the right action without effort. But according to, to Zen's approach, you can't get to that, it's called samadhi of action. Samadhi means balanced, centered state, being balanced and centered, uh, which is very important in martial arts, for instance, without first developing the samadhi of repose in meditation. So that if you become balanced and centered physically, emotionally, mentally, uh, then you can become be more balanced uh, socially. So you, you'll be able to act without second-guessing, without conscious effort, without pros and cons and trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. It will be more intuitively obvious to you what has to happen in this situation because you don't have a dog in the hunt. You're not afraid of losing something. You can put yourself in danger, uh, possibly, and so forth. But we, we don't think that comes from just uh, 
having a different viewpoint. We think that comes from having practiced that in meditation and, and gotten to the point where you're still making effort, but you're not aiming at anything now. You've gotten past the point of having a point <laughs> or having an object or a goal or a target, you know. You don't have that anymore, but you don't give up the effort. Since I want to be respectful of your time, I would like for you, if you would, uh, Paul. Well, the last two are pretty easy. We can do okay. those. Okay, good. I, I just didn't want to hold you too too long. No, 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 no problem. Okay. I you. keep this open for you, so there's okay. no problem. Thank you. So, any comment or question around that one? That's 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 as I said, that's that's a difficult one. But uh, from a Zen perspective, it's easier than the first two because it's what you practice on the cushion, sitting without aiming at anything, making effort without aiming at it. Okay, then the last two, four, how can I act like a sage in my job, family, etc.? What does that look like? I don't think you can act like a sage. You have to be a sage. And that doesn't mean that you're, you know, they say if your wife and family are happy with you, your Zen is working. <laughs> So it certainly doesn't want to become a wedge issue in your relationships. But if you, again, if you're okay by yourself on your cushion and you're, you've come to terms with your situation, you're going to be a whole lot more okay around your job, your family, and everybody else. And you, you become patient with yourself. So you can be a whole lot more patient with the kids and with the, you know, and I, I failed in this in my first marriage. It was terrible. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes. I was married too young. I was 19 years old when we married. We had children in our mid-20s, way too young. But, uh, you know, can't go back. So uh, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm an example of this. I'm certainly not the great Zen master here at home, I can tell you that. But um, there's a line toward the end of the same, this same poem, Xin Sing Ming by Sung San, where he says, uh, Ministers serve their lords, children obey their parents. Not obeying is not filial, failure to serve is no help. So you can tell it's Confucian, right? It's a Confucian influence, again, around 600. <coughs> and then he goes on to say, with practice hidden, hidden, functions secretly, like a fool, like an idiot. Just to continue in this way is called the host within the host. So he's saying that Ministers serve their lords, children obey their parents. Not obeying is not filial, failure to serve is no help. So my teacher, Matsuoka Roshi, used to say, would say, um, the Zen person has no problem following the sidewalks. We have no problem conforming to society because we're inherently nonconformists anyway. And so, yeah, I'll follow the sidewalks. What's the big, no big deal, right? Um, and I don't tread on somebody's grass. Whatever. So ministers serving their lords and uh, failure to serve is no help. If you don't serve your lord, and this is Confucian, or if you don't work with your boss or collaborate, you know, and you're always causing trouble, this is no help. It's not any help to them. It's no help to you. <laughs> then children obey their parents. Not obeying is not filial. Filial piety was a big deal under the Confucian system. And it probably should still be today. We see almost the reverse of it with the hover parents, helicopter parents, and all that stuff. So um, the way you act like a sage is you keep your light hidden under a bushel. It just doesn't become a factor. With practice hidden, functions secretly, like a fool, like an idiot. Nobody has to know that you're doing this. Mm -hmm. it shows. Yeah. As I said before, it shows. It'll show. You don't have to tell anybody. They just wonder why are you not losing your mind when all the rest of us are going crazy, you know, around the conference table, whatever it happens to be. And, and the same. reason you aren't is because you've developed this on the cushion. My wife the other day, she's gotten to where I showed my ass the other day about something that I should. <laughs> That's an expression from my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> she said, she told me, she says, you need to go meditate. Then we'll talk about yeah. this. <laughs> I can't tell you how many guys come to the Zendo and said, my wife told me I had to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, you have something, sir? It sounds like we're going along the theory of happy wife, happy life. 
yeah, yeah. Get it. And, and just just for you talking about the, the, the keeping the light under the bushel, I think we would probably relate to that. It's just doing the next right thing and not bragging about it. Yeah, it's some people carry their beads, beads, carry their beads, and you know, and their show and everything. And we we don't yeah. think that's a good idea. You're just yeah. you're just asking for it. Yeah, not not everybody has to know what you're doing. And, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's just really a case of you you doing it because it's the, the, the right thing I, to do. I think you develop a kind of charisma uh, because of this. They don't know what it is, but they just notice that somehow you're always calm and you you know you're not causing trouble and you're you're making contributions. And and in the conference room, sitting in a boardroom as a consultant, I I would sit there and I knew that all of the dialogue and everything is actually going to have to eventually come around to me because I was the only one who actually knew what was happening on the project and so forth. So you, you develop a kind of confidence around it. And since they call it spiritual confidence, if you think of what confidence usually means, it means we're, we have competence. That is, we know how to drive a car. So we're confident that we can get in a car and drive it. The spiritual confidence, I think, means in any situation, you, you will feel okay, again, because you don't have a dog in the hunt. You don't have anything to lose. You're willing to take the blame, Right. You're willing to be be the fall guy and say, "Yeah, I probably screwed that up." I'm, you know, um, I developed a little funny circular thing around this. Uh, what would a guy like me do in a case like this? <laughs> I would probably screw it up because I'm always screwing everything up. You know, Dogen said, "Fall down seven times, get up eight. You can't you can't succeed without failing." But at least I always know what I'm doing. <laughs> So I think it takes a sense of humor and some humility. So then anyone, the, the last one is related to that too. Any advice on working yet not taking credit? In my current working environment, I feel I have to stand up and take credit or run the risk of losing a job. And that's true. And in that situation, you have to make sure that you get credit for the things that you, that you contribute. But I think, again, we want to look at the verb here. What does he mean by working and taking? You know, I think what uh, Lao Tzu means by working here is, um, in the sense we've been talking about it, it's not really uh, executing the task to serve my Lord as minister, although that's important. It's more on the level of I'm working so that I don't create a problem. I'm working so that I see with compassion uh, this boss that I don't get along with, but I can see, I can see what's going on here. I'm working on that, you know, I'm working on a, on a deeper level, on a more subliminal level, maybe. That's what I think he means by working here. And if it works, uh, then guess what? You're going to be a great collaborator. You and your boss are going to get along fine. And in that situation, you don't have to take credit for it. Because everybody's going to know where it's coming from. At least that you're, you know, you're a huge contributor to it. And great coaches in football, basketball, great managers of businesses, they always give everybody else the credit, verbally, I mean, as an outward thing. But everybody knows that they're making all this work. That's good. Thank you, Sensei. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Before we close... Would you uh, like to share about what you're, the projects that you're doing? Uh, yeah, the one that uh, you all might be interested in, you can go online and pre-order a book, which is a handbook on med Zen and meditation, Zen's specific form of meditation, which I break it down in great detail in terms of how the, it's called deconstructing the senses in the most natural way emphasizing the natural posture, the natural breath, the natural frame of mind, so that to Zach's point, you, you can do this meditation already. Your body knows how to do it. You just have to follow your body and not, not try to force your body into something unnat unnatural. Your body knows how to do the breathing and so forth. So it's uh, our approach is uh, a whole lot less uh, control freak type of uh, attitude towards meditation. It's more listening to the wisdom of the body and following it and so forth, that kind of thing. So the book is like that. It's a different take on Zen. 
than any of the other books that are out there, I, I believe. I haven't published anything. I've been doing this since in my 20s, so I've been doing it nearly 50 years, Zen practice and teaching. I haven't published anything to date other than online newsletters and things of that nature, because frankly, I think I would have been embarrassed by it. But, uh, you know, I've gone through this again and again now, developing the course around it. We're developing a, a nine-week course, eight or nine or ten-week course that'll be coming available probably in November, which is our Founders Month. Matsuoka Roshi was born and died in November. And um, there's a podcast online called Unmind, uh, something like Zen Moments with uh, Great Cloud, which is my Dharma name translated into English. And that has uh, all of these things. I'm really talking about the same thing. Each of the Unmind has a little hike poem, a little 17-syllable poem. And then I have a commentary on that poem. And then they're written, and you can read it. But there's also an audio file with a selection of a segment of, of my one of my musical pieces, instrumental, in the background. And then uh, an image of one of my paintings. So one of our new guys, John Mitchell, who may have been on, I don't think he's ever joined this. I've invited some people to join this, by the way. Good. Um, he uh, turns out to be an expert in podcasts. And so as he joined our group, he said, I'd, I'd really like to help you with this. And so he's made it all happen. And uh, so we have the, the book coming published in January. You can find it at Amazon online called Original Frontier, The Original Frontier. And it's kind of a handbook. Uh, for people living in these times to um, support and supplement their practice of meditation, learn how to do it, uh, encourage you to keep at it and so forth. Quite, I think, overly long, but uh, the publisher said, no, this is fine. This is about normal length for us. And uh, the online podcast is a new thing. The online course coming probably in November uh, eight or nine segments, which could take you up to 20 minutes or so to complete each one. And then we have two follow-up courses coming in 2021 after that. I'll put in the notes um, links for the book uh, and for the podcast. Yep. I'll put those in the notes for okay. everyone in the episode notes. So that's good. Any, Great. Anything else before we close, guys? Are we good? And that's that's the reason I've been so busy lately. I'm just cranking out a lot of content, writing a lot of content for these new opportunities that we have because we've had expert people join us and, and, and doing all the technical work. I have no idea how to do it. must be time. It's really wonderful. Right. Well, thank you very much. Zach, do you have something? No, not at all. I'm just, I'm excited to check out the book. The book will not be available till January, Zach. So I'll, the I'll get it for my birthday. The podcasts are up now. Okay, guys, everyone. We're in this together. Yes. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.